Hey, fanboys and fangirls, it's Aaron Broverman for part two of our interview with uh, Kevin Boyd, now Fan Expo's comic coordinator. Uh, when you last heard him, he had just left uh, Paradise, and uh, in this next episode, he talks about establishing uh, his store, the Comic Book Lounge and Gallery, which uh, employed a lot of the uh, techniques that are now being used by shops like Silver Snail, where they made comic shops less of a dungeon feel, more of a lounge uh, feel. We also talk about uh, the Schuster Awards, which are Canada's uh, Canadian comic book awards, and and Kevin played the uh, integral role in founding that award show. So take a listen. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. So you worked for Fan Expo for a while. And yeah, five years at Fan Expo. Five years. And simultaneously, you're doing the Schuster Awards, which you launched at the Paradise Show? Yeah, we launched it at Paradise in 2005. Okay. Yeah. And that was a big thing. Like when I went to work for Fan Expo, quite a number of people who worked on the Schuster's felt that it was a paradise event. Okay. And it was never intended. Like when we launched, when we first had meetings with Mark Hosquith and and he said, like, if you want the Schuster's to be something other than just the show awards, you've got to travel. You've got to go on the road. Mm-hmm. We shortly afterwards we started going to places like Calgary and Montreal. So this, it so. moved around. Yeah. So because because the Schuster's are, uh, it's basically like the Canadian Comic Book Awards, yeah. right? They're like our version of the Eisner Awards. Okay. Except that there is really no Canadian comic book industry, aside from Drawn and Quarterly and a couple other things. Okay. But there is a comic book industry that has people who work in Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver and all Canadians. Those yes. So you're honoring Canadians within a mostly American mostly American industry. Exactly. Yeah. And it's named after Joe Schuster. Yeah, who did just the same thing. Okay. He was a Canadian who moved to the United States, became famous doing comics. Still had Toronto ties when he was starting out. He's similar to the guys that are here that get jobs would go work for Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like John Byrne lived in Calgary. Okay. And then he moved to New York and did comics. And then he became an American, but he was still, everybody considered him to be Canadian. And I don't have to tell everybody that, like, Joe Schuster is, like, the original artist of Superman. Mm-hmm. Anyone listening to this probably knows that already. The Daily Planet started out as the Daily Star, which was a nod to the Toronto Star, right? Okay, there we go. You do the Schusters. Why did you want to do the Schusters? That was interesting in that we're looking for programming for the convention, and James Whaley, who was a friend of mine at the time, he's a, he was a former convention promoter okay. who had also created comics. He had a magazine called Orb Magazine, which was like our Canadian version of heavy metal. Okay. And so it launched all around the same time that heavy metal was becoming a big deal. Mm-hmm. So James came to me he, with ideas for the show. He would write, have a little booklet and he'd write things down. He says, how about comic awards? And I said, Comic Awards, that sounds interesting, but that would take a while to coordinate. We need a little bit more than a couple months to put something together like Comic Awards. So why don't we do the show in 2004 and then meet again after? 
I had a friend of mine named Tyrone who had come to me with a sort of similar thing. He says, we should do comic awards. And so I said, well, let's put Tyrone and James in a room and invite Mark Asquith and maybe one or two other people who are around in the industry to talk about it. So you got influencers together, like Mark Asquith, big in the com- in the comic community in Toronto. Tyrone yeah. Bijan was, was big in the comic community yeah, in Toronto. Yeah, he used to self-publish the Canadian Liberty Legion and a couple of things. Okay, yeah. James he was Whaley. So everybody who, who's been around for a while and they, they knew their stuff. Yeah, Dave Dorigo, who used to run Dragon Lady for many years as manager. And, okay, yeah. okay, cool. So they put their heads together. Did they like create the concept for the show or? James's original concept was let's do comic book awards in, for comics made in Canada. Okay. Okay. So then I started to say, well, that's very small. Like, why don't we look at the people who make comics who live in Canada and make it the Canadian Comic Book Creator Awards? Good idea. Right. And then so we went from there. And we made it more about, you know, who are the best artists who are from Canada who are working in mainstream comics or indie comics and so forth. And that was the other thing was that I didn't want there to be a distinction between different types of comics. If you were working in comics you and you were doing a certain job, you're eligible to be nominated for that award. Mm-hmm. Whether you're working for Drawn and Quarterly or you were working for Marvel Comics. Yeah. Right. So you could be in the same category. And it was voted on by who? Uh, in the first three years, we made it voted on by the public. Okay. So we had uh, like oh, who did, we had online voting. Okay. So we sent cards to comic shops and we promoted online. And um, I'm not upset with who was voted in in the first few years, but it became evident that a public vote system could be skewed and cheated. What happened? Uh, well, people. One publisher in Vancouver. I won't name his studio, but they're they're a really small studio. He was a school teacher mm-hmm. as well. So he circulated the ballots around his school. So he had all the kids fill in boxes and boxes of ballots. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you show up with 5,000 people have voted for a studio that nobody knows. Yeah. Only 300 people have voted for Drawn Quarterly, mm-hmm. which everybody knows. Or which most is better. Know. Usually, yeah. yeah. And produces actual comics as opposed to this other studio, which has a couple of indie comics that they produce. Yeah. It was at that point that I said, you know what? I think we have to take it back another notch. And I think we have to look at juries. Okay. And juries will sit down and discuss everyone individually and say the merits back and forth and then debate it and then eventually come to a conclusion on who should win. Okay. As opposed to letting online vote like chance. Okay. So how did you make up your jury? So what I do is I try to recruit people who are either comics critics or uh, people who work at stores like managers and so forth. I try to bring in uh, commentators like people who've written newspaper articles, things like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, different people, filmmakers, actors, actresses, people like that. People in the community who are interested in comics. Okay. Who could just be handed a box of comics and say, okay, you have the summer to look at all these things. Can someone, like if they want to be on the Schuster jury and you feel that they're like a legit contributor to the to the community, could they like lobby for inclusion yeah. in the yeah, jury? Yeah, no, they could. All We've had people just contact me and say, hey, I'd like to be on the jury for next year. And I'll say, okay, let me take a look at your credentials and... I mean, usually it's people I know, so it's it's about five minutes later I say yes. So no. what's the commitment if you're like a jury member? What do you have to the do? The commitment is that, first off, we, we try to find someone who's actually reviewed a lot of the comics because we have to, 
while we do get donations from the publishers of, of reading copies, uh, when it comes to Marvel and DC stuff, I have to buy all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so I'll say, what have you read already? What yeah. have you already experienced? So if someone says to me, well, I've already read New Frontier. I'll say, okay, then I don't have to give you New Frontier if uh, that's the nominated book. Okay. Right? So then I'll say, okay, well, I'm going to get you copies of the – what do you need? They'll mm-hmm. say, I have, I want copies of this. Then I'll arrange to have a box put together for them, and then they'll have a month to look through all those books in the in the box. Okay. And, and I actually break it down into two or three different juries now because there's a kid's jury, and then there's the indie comics jury, and then there's the people that judge uh, – writer artist cartoonist okay so so yeah. it's it's getting smaller like you don't have to judge every comic in the shoes yeah in the exactly. shoes awards. yeah okay yes. except for like maybe like the best overall category or something like yeah. that okay yeah so why do you do it why do you keep doing it well i feel it's important for canada i mean we don't have our own eisner awards this is it and the uh, the other Canadian Comic Awards is very niche. So the Doug Wright Awards, I would say maybe they have better promotional skills than we do. <laughs> yeah. So they're certainly in the media a lot more than we are. Yeah. But they're very nichey indie cartoon. Like it's all about um, small press. They're not going to do Marvel and DC. Exactly. Yeah. Which maybe isn't an accurate reflection of like what the better comics are yeah, in, exactly. in like for Canadian creators and that sort of thing. Yeah. And they're looking at things like uh, we, when we met originally, we went for different award categories. Mm-hmm. So while mine are artist, cartoonist, writer, cover artist mm-hmm. rules mm-hmm. within a community, the Doug Wright awards are best book, best up and coming talent, best okay. nonlinear storytelling. Right. So very niche things. Okay. And generally, I mean, it started out as the festival awards for TCAF. So it was really only looking at people who were going to be at TCAF. Okay. And then they expanded it to be Canadian as well, because they thought, well, if they're being Canadian, we should be Canadian, I guess, uh, right? Okay, so, okay, I see. So it became all Canadian. And um, and then they weren't bilingual. Uh, well, we were bilingual. And then they got some flack for that. They're still, I think, English, but they'll take translated works. Oh, okay. I as, see. as new stuff. So I see, I see. And then you also have a Hall of Fame, right? Yep. And that's important because we don't have one, right? Well, yeah. Well, the great thing about the Hall of Fame is, um, and we'll try to pick different people each year to represent different parts of Canada's history. Okay. Uh, and that's the thing that yeah, and you, you know about Hope's book, and Rachel's yeah. books, and so forth. During the 1940s, we didn't get American comics. Mm-hmm. So our own Canadian comic book industry sprang up from nothing. Yeah. And they called them the Canadian whites because they were black and white and on cheap paper. Uh, but we had our own Canadian heroes like Nelvana and... Uh, Brock uh, Windsor and those people. Yeah. So it was really something. And they were, you know, there were uh, publishers in Vancouver. There were publishers in Montreal, publishers in Toronto, uh, even some East Coast publishers. It was kind of cool. It was building up. And then that embargo left and the American comics came back and the Canadian comics were gone. Mm-hmm. Like pretty much within a, a couple of weeks. But all these people who worked on it haven't had any recognition mm-hmm. since then. So it was kind of important to go back and say, hey, these guys who worked, these guys and men and women, actually, because they're women as well, who worked in, in comics in the 1940s, they deserve recognition and something to thank them for their contributions to our culture. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you get people like Adrian Dingle, who created Novana. Uh, we had honored him early on in our Hall of Fame. Uh, then, you know, we also looked at, um, there was a quiet revolution in, in Quebec. Mm-hmm. So a cultural revolution in the 70s. And comics were a big part of that. So yeah. Croak Magazine and The Humorous. And 
So a lot of that. So those people have been looked at and many of them have been honored in our Hall of Fame as well. Okay. Like unlike the Americans who have the, you know, the Silver Age and the Bronze Age and all that stuff, Canada went from Golden Age to nothing until like the mid seventies when we had our own silver age. Yeah. And With that's what Captain when, Canuck and those sorts of things. Yeah. Captain Canuck, Jim Willie's orb and so forth. Cerebus cool. the Aardvark. And then now is this the modern age you'd think? Yeah. Yeah. The modern age really is, um, you know, with the black and white explosion of the eighties, there were a lot of Canadian publishers and creators that got into the field. Okay. And from there, we're, we're part, we're an integral part of the economics community pretty much from 1980 on because you can work anywhere. And like Kalman was saying, like, it seems like stuff from Canada is cool. So kind things of, yeah. sell a little bit here now. It is. There's a certain, uh, at home, there's a certain, Hey, let's, let's support Canadian comic creators and comic, well, comic book characters. I should say we want an alpha flight book. We want mm. Captain Canuck. We like that Wolverine is from Canada. You know, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Those things matter to us. You know, we had that documentary that uh, the Hope produced. The Heroes documentary. Yeah. Yeah, okay. We've had a couple books like uh, Invaders from the North, which have looked at Canadian comics and the community. And mm-hmm. it's been interesting to see how that's all developed over the last 15 years as well. Yeah, really cool. But it's nice to think that we were part of that as well. Yeah, like the Schusters was at the forefront of that. Mm-hmm. Pop- Kind of by accident, but you're like yeah. part. You're like part of it, and then you added. I think last year you added like a fan award or like a fan section of the Hall of Fame. So TM Maple was a Canadian letter writer who wrote thousands of letters to every publication. Okay. So if you were reading Marvel comics in the eighties or DC comics in the eighties or indie comics, whatever, you would see letters from TM Maple. Okay. And it was a fellow named Jim Burke who lived here in Toronto. All he did was write letters. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't receive any recognition for it. And he kind of faded away and he passed away. And a lot of people didn't know In that. In anonymity, basically. Yeah. So when we were talking about doing something for the people that don't quite fit in a Hall of Fame, but should be recognized... Why? Why should they be right? Because they're important. Their contributions are important to what I consider part of the Canadian comics community. Okay. Like TM Maple. Okay. And like uh, this year, uh, Michael Hirsch and Patrick Lubert. So we're talking about people who aren't professionals, but their contribution is just as important. Yeah. Okay. Like a store owner that will never win best store. Okay. Right? So like Rob Charpentier from Comics and More was beloved, big part of the community, did a lot of stuff for schools and things like that. And he received the award this year, but he passed away passed last away. year. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a way to sort of recognize his contributions to... When you do the Hall of Fame, and I've always wanted mm-hmm. to ask somebody who runs a Hall of Fame of any kind, mm-hmm. does it matter whether or not the people in the Hall of Fame are dead or alive? No. Okay. Because for some t- things, especially like sports Hall of Fames, mm-hmm. you feel like you're not going to get in the Hall of Fame until you pass away. Mm-hmm. Some people feel like we had this conversation because uh, James Whaley, mm-hmm. co-founder of the awards, he was brought into the Hall of Fame this year. Yeah. So in his speech, he was like, I feel there are many people who are deceased who should be in the Hall of Fame ahead of me. And our thoughts when we said, you know what, that's true, but sometimes it's important to honor people while they're alive, mm-hmm. right? So that they they know that they're appreciated. Yeah. And so we get a mix. We may say there are three people on the list. Two of them are deceased. One of them is alive. So we might say, okay, you know what, let's let's give it to the one who, the person who's alive 
because they can come and appreciate it and receive the award and it will matter to them. Mm -hmm. And we can always give an award to a deceased person at any point. That's something we do take into account. And now the each award is sort of sponsored, right? So you don't have to pay for the actual like plaque. So what, what happened was um, we used to do events where people contributed art okay. and then we auctioned the art off. Mm. And that money raised paid for the Schusters. Mm -hmm. So we did a Superman art, art show and auction and we did a Wolverine one. Mm -hmm. And then it was kind of like the second year... I started to hear the grumbling yeah. from artists and the professional like, artists. I, it's annoying. I'm, yeah. I'm busy. Kind of. Yeah. Thing. What are you going to come back to me every year and ask me to? Are you going to tax me? Yeah. To do a piece of artwork, and I said, you know what? I don't feel comfortable making people do something that they don't want to do. Yeah. And I don't want to feel like we're taking advantage, even though this is an award for artists. Some people will feel that they may never get recognized, and they're working for the award. I don't want it to seem like if you do the big sketch, you're going to get an award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's completely different. The, the people who do the sketches, who give them to me and so forth, or whoever's working in the awards, they will never have contact with the people who are deciding on the awards. Mm -hmm. So, And they'll never know that they did that. So we said, you know what? Let's go to retailers who have already won the retailer award. Okay who should see some value in the Schuster Awards uh -huh. because they've been recognized for their contribution, like Happy Harbor and Edmonton and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very proud of the fact that they won the Retailer Award. Yeah. And they have it prominently placed in their store, and they they talk about how they're a Schuster Award-winning store and yeah. so forth. So when we went to the retailers, most of them said, yeah, we'll give you money. Anywhere from $300 to $1,500 contributions, and they sponsored various awards. And there are not many awards, so it's not like you're no. you're you're like gouging them because there's endless amounts of awards. Yeah. These are like a few awards, right? And the money that we raised from this year covers for this year and next year. There was more than enough, so oh, I didn't. Nice. So they're getting two years of sponsorship for one, basically. Perfect. That's yeah. so good. While you're doing this, and the Schusters are still going on, and they're they're a beloved and honored part of the community at this moment. You know, one of those accidental contributions. Yeah. You left your work with Van Expo at, at some point, right? Like you weren't you weren't working for them anymore. I, uh, well, I launched the Comic Book Lounge in 2012. So Dragon Lady was closing, and we took over the retail comics business from them so that it would be seamless. Okay. So that you go to Dragon Lady one week, and then you go to Comic Book Lounge the next week. Comic Book Lounge was originally supposed to be a partnership. And it became clear as we were developing it that my partner wasn't particularly interested in certain aspects of that business. So rather than continually fighting with him, I bought him out. What I remember is it was like a three-prong thing where you had Gorilla Printing, which was like a print shop in the back. Yeah. You had the Toronto Comics Workshop, yeah. which was like a, I don't know, learn to draw comic school type thing. Yeah, it was thing? like the predecessor of Ty Templeton's boot camp. Boot camp, okay. Yeah. And then you had you, which was like the store and basically the main part. And then the gallery part was like gallery of artists, art and stuff. Mm -hmm. That was just like displayed. Yeah. So we could display original art or do art shows and, okay. you know, have uh, for the school, uh, they could do art shows for the, uh, the students to promote their work, things like that. I see. I see. So why did you open a store? Like, why did you go into retail? You know, it's funny. When I worked on conventions for the longest time and I gradually got out of doing my own tables at conventions. So I would gradually get out of selling side of things. I kept thinking to myself, boy, I really hate 
moving long boxes and stuff like that. And I really feel for my friends here who have stores because it's a lot of work. And then with Dragon Lady in closing, it was kind of like I didn't want to see it disappear because Dragon Lady was around for like 35 years or 38 years. Yeah. And I didn't want to see Joe out of work and I didn't want to see a whole bunch of things. Which is kind of the, ironic. They were friends? Because like, you were friends with him? Yeah, or? Joe was on the Schusters for the longest time. Yeah. And we were friends. And I used to come down and visit him at the Dragon Lady and stuff like that. And I felt bad for him that he was going to lose his job. And I knew that Sean had the Toronto Cartoonist Workshop and, and Tyrone and, and Darwin had Gorilla Printing. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, you've got this space which is empty at the front. Why don't we put a small comic shop in the front? And, or why don't you put a small comic shop in the front? It wasn't we originally, it was you. Okay. And that way Joe can stay employed and you can keep just providing comics to the customers in the region. So originally it was purely you wanted the part of Dragon Lady that, you know, you didn't want Dragon Lady to leave and you wanted to help your friend still yeah. have a job. Because when a store closes, often the customers leave comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you shop at a comic shop, as you know, like you become friends with the owners, you become friends with the staff. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like your bartender, your comic bartender. Yeah. And so, you know, when you go and see Joe and you talk comics and stuff like that, Joe's saying, oh, you should check this out. Or, you know, it just, it ends up being more of a, of a friendship thing. You want to go down and hang out. Mm-hmm. And that to me is what a comic book store provides to the community. It's, these are our cheers. These are the place where we want to go and hang out and spend our afternoon. Where everybody knows your name. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. see, I see. You were on the forefront of something that has started happening during the comic book lounge and gallery and, and is still kind of happening after where comic shops stopped being the like dusty, musty, all male seeming Like threatening places for people that weren't in the fandom. And you opened it up and you, you, it was like more of a lounge for real with like chairs and couches and, and that sort of thing. And I think you were one of the first people to do that that I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you actually were, but that was, that was part of my intent. It was to make it a, like again, with this whole, um, if if a comic is comic store is like your your comics bar where you're going to see your bartender mm. and you're getting your weekly yeah uh, fix of comics or you're like as you might go to a bar and have a beer once a week or something mm. like that and get your nachos and stuff like that. Why not make it a place where you want to go and hang out mm. and and do things? And we would set up tables and artists would draw during the day. You just make it more of a place where you'd want to be, like a community center. Mm. And and we had lots of space at the beginning. The store filled up quickly with merchandise and books, but we had a lot of space to start. So we brought in couches and chairs and yeah. and, and then we'd have those evening events and those parties and things like that. So that to complement that book launches and Yeah. I mean I live far away from the comic book lounge and gallery, but I started coming because of the events. Mm-hmm. Like no one else was doing events like that that i that i on a regular basis like they would do it every every once in a while but they weren't doing them on a monthly basis by the time i'm two years into it beguiling's do one doing one every week it seems right so that's the thing and that's what i want to talk to you about Mm because like you started this whole like comics equivalent of cheers and then all of a sudden, at their new location, Silver Snail has a coffee shop attached to mm-hmm. their place. And it has couches and lounges and that sort of thing. Yeah. And 
it's becoming more of a lounge feel. Like you were mentioning, the Beguiling has their page and panel thing, which is in the reference library, which has... A coffee little shop bit, right next yeah, to it. Yeah, coffee and, shop right, right next to it and more of a lounge-ish yeah. feel. So do you feel like you you started a trend? I guess that's good mm-hmm. if I did. It's nice to be uh, an idea person that never make any money. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> but, but <coughs> sorry. And it was yeah. also, wasn't it also a way to make women more comfortable and other people that weren't necessarily died in the wool comic fans more comfortable in coming yeah, well, coming into a comic shop as a person that works with people in the community you hear certain things okay you see you you hear certain complaints about stores and things that you know and then you make a mental note that if i was going to do it i would do it this way i would make it bright and open and and accessible i wouldn't make a comic shop a dungeon so and you know my friend daryl from third quadrant a great friend of mine and loving his great guy but his shop is not what I would want to do. Mm-hmm. His shop is toys everywhere, and it's kind of like kind of dark and not inviting to to women. Like somebody's a, garage, kind yeah, of, kind of, of like that. Yeah. And he has his customers, and he has a way of doing things that has worked for him for many years. Mm-hmm. When I'm looking at a, a nice big open space with white walls, perfect for hanging art, I, I'm thinking to myself, this could be more of what I feel a comic shop should be, which mm-hmm. is a place that's accessible for everybody. Mm. It's not just a guy's clubhouse. You know, that that's sort of where Debbie fits into the picture. Yeah, too. I want to get into that because you were dating someone who, and I know, had a major influence on the direction that the shop w- was going in, right? Well, I mean, Debbie would tell me stories of being a, a fangirl. Okay. In, in the, she loved comics when she was going to school. Uh, so she was doing her degree and she would go down to the local comic shop, which... I can't remember the name of the shop in Oakville that she would go to, but she would go in and, and the boys would make fun of her, like jokes, like sexual jokes and things like that, mm-hmm. that made her feel uncomfortable as a woman coming in to buy something that she wants to enjoy. Mm-hmm. To me, that's that's counterintuitive as a retailer. Why would you tick off your customers? Why would you alienate an audience group that wants to be part of it? Half the population, your opportunity to make more money off Mm -hmm. of your small customer base. If it's a a fear thing of women, well, here's an opportunity for you to talk to women and, you know, maybe, you know, expand your social horizons and -hmm. and start to realize that, you know, men and women aren't that different. We're the same species and we actually all have the same basic needs and and stuff like that. But, um, like, we all need to eat, we need to read, we need to be interested in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, there's an amaz- there's been an amazing trend since the rise of manga in the early part of this century where the manga readers want something new to read and they started looking at comics. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of aware of that too around the time that I opened the lounge that there was a growing um, audience of women who were interested in comics. So I thought, well, if I make my store presentable and inviting, then I'll increase my female customer base. Mm-hmm. And certainly Debbie was uh, supportive. And you didn't meet her in the shop. Like, she wasn't a customer. No, uh, she was friends with my friend Jen, who owns the store The Dragon in okay. Guelph, Jen Haynes. Okay. At one of Jen's birthday parties, I met Deborah and... We sort of talked and hit it off, and she was interested in comics. And on our first date, we talked a lot about comics. Okay. You know? So, uh, and then from there, she started to come over to my place and read more comics. Okay. And get caught. She basically got caught up and 
15 years of comics that she'd missed. So you like, you have this land, you're like at the forefront of a lot of things. Like these are, these are women that the manga thing like was because of like the chapters, graphic novel sections getting bigger and bigger in bookstores and that sort of thing. So they were moving from like the manga sections in bookstores to comic shops, looking for something else to read. Simultaneously, you have, the movie industry getting interested in mm-hmm. comics and, and doing the comic book movies and that sort of thing. Yeah. And that becomes bankable. Well, and then you'd see interesting things like, let's say um, when the ghost world movie came out years mm-hmm. ago, all of a sudden women are like that. I like that movie. I'd like to read that graphic novel. Mm-hmm. So they come in looking for that book. Right. What do you have like ghost world? So, so the, the shop's moving along. Joe is working for you. Yeah. People like me are coming in and talking Joe's ear off because he's very knowledgeable at this, with this sort of thing. And he's fun yeah. to hang out with. Mm-hmm. And Debbie is putting she, she started ladies night, right? At the, at the, at the lounge. I was aware of strange adventures doing a ladies night in, in Halifax. Okay. And I thought it was a great idea. And Debbie and I had talked about it. And then Alice Quinn and Karen Smith, interesting enough, uh, they were friends at the time. Okay. They came in and said, we should do something here like that. And I said, well, actually, I kind of read about Callum's Ladies' Night in, in Halifax, and I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And so why don't we plan something? Okay. So we started putting together the first Ladies' Night, and it was... Deborah and Alice and Karen contributed a little bit as far as advice and what she felt. And Karen is uh, Ty Templeton's wife, right? Yes, yeah. Just for the listeners. for the people who don't, yeah. yeah. And then Alice Quinn um, was with T dot Comics. Which yeah, she, she's been a guest. She's on been the on show. the guest. Yeah. yeah. Deborah was an integral part of it, as was Karen and Alice and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. It still kind of happens. Like there are ladies' nights happening in other shops now. So um, Deborah passed, mm-hmm. and we came back after a certain amount of time to say, let's keep ladies night going because that was very important to her. Okay. And so we revived it, but then I closed the store. So what's going to happen to ladies night? And a few people who were involved with ladies night said to me that they'd like to keep it going. And I said, I thought that was a great idea. I don't own ladies night. as far as I'm concerned, it's not to me, that's in a community event. And I would love to see it mm-hmm. if it started to go to other stores and other stores adopted the idea. Yeah. Because I think it's important mm-hmm. um, for uh, women to feel welcome in comic shops. And what's the goal of Ladies Night? Like, what did Deborah wanted it to want it to be? What did Alice want it to be? What did Karen want it to be? What happened was you got an amazing group of diverse people who were united by their interests in comics and fandom. Okay. New friendships start. Mm-hmm. projects spin out of things you're you're having events right so people are yeah. meeting each other yeah like it's they like never usually event. would yeah. in in comics just in general right so it's community building mm-hmm. it's hey now i know you and you do you know you're uh brandy you're involved in the naked news so now mm-hmm. i know about that show or you're um a columnist for uh, geek prod mm-hmm. or something like that so then you learn about what people are doing you know Sunny's talking about the serenity events that she does yeah um, other people are makeup artists and they're mm-hmm. talking about what they do so suddenly you know uh, and and i think hope saw something there and started to organize what she hoped to be a tv show yeah that was going to spin out of that which was going to be um the new book she just published secret, secret lives of geek secret loves of geek girls yeah, yeah. that was going to be a tv show called the secret lives of geek girls oh, okay and debbie was going to be one of the girls that she followed and as well as a few other people yeah and they would sort of follow them around conventions and 
you know, sort of like your reality TV type of show. Mm-hmm. But if we hadn't had those ladies' nights, that group of people would never have been assembled. And if you hadn't had the number of events that you had in general, ladies' nights would have never happened because those people wouldn't have been in the same room yeah. very often, right? No. Okay. Yeah. No, and, and while Hope and Rachel knew each other, and this is Rachel Ritchie, um, who also co-published Novana and so forth. With Hope. With yeah. Hope, yeah. She, they met uh, in advance through uh, the, the film project. Okay. But they became friends at the store because they hadn't lived in the same town before that. Yeah. And so they, you would use the store as a meeting place to discuss these ideas. Yeah. And, uh, and so a lot of the work for Novana was done at the store. So the conflict lounge, in a way, became like a salon. Like kind of, people, yeah. It became what Dragon Lady was, where Dragon Lady, you had comic book professionals and people like in the industry and people that really cared about it mm-hmm. shopping there. That was like yeah. the place to see your Darwin Cooks and your Francis yeah. Manipal shopping for comics and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then the lounge became that for a for a wider group of people. For a while it did, yeah. 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 And then um, Tragedy okay. with Deborah. She was helping helping you out at the store, and like for you, that was like a, like having her there was like a big a big motivating factor, right? Well, I mean, she was my partner, yeah. uh, you know. I say love of my life; I, it's an understatement. But mm. she was a huge part of what I did, and one of the reasons why I opened the store was to have something more concrete than working on conventions, like something that we could build together. You know, Debbie contributed socially. She was a, a, an amazing host. Okay. Like she knew people, she knew how to talk to people, and she knew how to make them feel welcome. She always had was behind the camera, and you know, your your sort of nebbishy mm-hmm. people that are uncomfortable talking to people that you find in comic shops a mm-hmm. lot. Yeah. She would be like, I, I want, she was the matchmaker. She yeah. would, she would get people meeting each other. And I, yeah. I think you'd be really interested in this. And cause yeah. she had a way of connecting with people on their level in a way that they probably never connected to anyone else in their life. I, I've met a lot of really smart people over the years, but I've never met anyone um, like Deborah because her wiring was different from the rest of us in the way that she could relate to people and communicate and understand exactly what they loved mm-hmm. and, and cultivate that love, mm-hmm. you know? So she would come in and say, so like one friend of mine, Matthew, he was very nervous mm-hmm. and he would came in and he was very shy. And so Deborah just came in and sat down and talked to him about, well, what do you like? What comics do you like? And so forth. And just in those conversations, you know, he started to feel more comfortable mm-hmm. and now he wants to write comics and he wants to do things. So he's more outgoing, um, but he felt that he'd never had anybody talk to him like that. Yeah. Who could understand. And she knew exactly, like, Debbie spent a lot of time understanding fandom. Mm -hmm. So, like, she liked My Little Pony, but she went out of her way to understand what a brony was and how that fit in and and what their interests were and what their needs were. As much as she was a part of it, she also kind of had, like, a Jane Goodall approach to what was going on in fandom where she would take like a concept that she heard about and know everything about it and sort of be also the observer while simultaneously being a part of it. Yeah. And very much like a social watcher Mm -hmm. type of person. 
Right? And she, uh, as an intellectual, I mean, she had this ability to, she could read anything and absorb and remember everything about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I think that she called it didactic memory. She could interpret what she read and remember the points mm-hmm. and what was said. Yeah. So, uh, you know, she had a, a habit that would occasionally get into trouble of correcting people if they were wrong about <laughs> something. Yeah. If they said, oh, I saw this movie and so-and-so was in it, she would shout out the right name, mm-hmm. thinking that she was helpful. But often that would be like, well, why are you correcting me? Like, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we had a lot of fun there. I was obviously stressed because it was a business. And, you know, you put a lot into your business and it, a lot into it when it's your business. It, you live it. It's 24-7. Yeah. So even though I'm working at the hospital, uh, I've got Joe at the store running things uh, and Rachel's helping out and eventually she's doing more. Um, uh, Deborah's helping with certain events mm-hmm. and I'm working with Darwin and Sean and Tyrone to do other events. And, and things like that. Karen is putting on like the 24-hour yep. uh, marathon. Mm-hmm. She's trying to do like the Scott McCloud yep. thing, the 24-hour comic marathon and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you had major things. I can't believe the number of things you you were doing in the yeah. in the heyday. Uh you must have been running yourself ragged. Like why were you doing so many things so so often? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. Um it's hard for me to explain. I am very much like if I like the idea and I think it'll work, let's do it. Okay. Like I'm not a person that says well, maybe, maybe not. It's either I think we can do it or I think we can't do it. Okay. And so I thought with the marathons, I thought, what a great idea. Let's do it. And so even though Templeton's boot camp moved out to another location, I'm still friends with Karen and Ty. And, and I, she said, we really love to do this. I said, let's do it. Let's, what do we need to make this happen? But if you say that to enough people in a month... It's yeah. like we're doing, like we're doing stuff Which all is the fine. time. Like, as okay. far as I'm concerned, that store could be busy every night of the week yeah. with a different event. Mm-hmm. It's like anything that gets people in my door will hopefully sell me, sell more graphic novels. Did it? It did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It did. And then when Deborah passed away um, uh, two years ago, actually from when we're recording this, it kind of, uh, it became sad. Mm-hmm. And, and people, obviously my energy wasn't there. And so I stopped doing all these events. Yeah. So I I slowed down. Some people equated the store with their positive experiences of Debbie, and it was too sad for them to come in. Yeah. So I noticed a severe... And it was too sad for you, because everything reminded you of her. Um, Yeah, but on the other hand, I needed work to keep myself off, Ah, my mind off of it. So Mm -hmm. I did work a lot on the store. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I had a very full store, Mm -hmm. and I needed to sell more stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Gorilla Printing decided that they were going to leave. And then I had the toy store people who were sharing space with me, Shane Kirschenblatt and his wife, Sari. And it just it became more about whether we can keep it going as a business yeah, as opposed to a social thing. What was the decline of the, of the business? Because um, you had Joe there for yeah. the first little while and then he left or yeah i had to unfortunately let joe go it was not something i wanted to do and um he and i had talked many times about the reason why i had to let him go in the end mm-hmm. so um then this is a sort of one of the funny things about having friends and being an employer as well okay is that sometimes if you tell your friend many times over and over again that something has to be done a certain way Mm-hmm. And then they don't do it. Uh, eventually, you have to say, "Listen, I'm sorry. You know, you're not obviously not listening to me." They anymore. don't do it at all, or they don't do it the certain way. They weren't doing it at all. Okay. 
And I'm not going to get into yeah, the yeah. reason, specific yeah. reason why. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily a, a specific business related thing. It was more of presentation. Okay. So yeah, it was, it was not something I wanted to do. I mean, Joe, I think would still like to be employed and have money coming in. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, from a certain point of view, he would agree that he was burned down a retail. It seemed, yeah, from our first, like from the first time we talked and he was the first guest that I had in here. Yeah. It seemed like he was just as tired of like, he'd been doing it for a long retail, time, you know, and that the passion, he wanted to do something else. Yeah. Okay. So, and and I'm happy to help him do whatever he can. Like, we're on podcast. Like, we do a movie review podcast together. Mm -hmm. And I see him fairly regularly. So, mm -hmm. and I communicate with him on Facebook. And even after he left, I still would talk to him really regularly about stuff. Well, it's good that you guys are still friends. Like, yeah. That's really awesome. And he understood why. I mean, it, it was it was a condition of employment. And mm -hmm. uh, I... I fought to keep him on when that condition wasn't being met mm -hmm. and I just kept giving warnings and it just, anyway, it was, it was unfortunate. But at that point uh, I had more people who were working there who could fill his fill in. Yeah. Was that sort of the beginning of the end? Or? No, not, no. I, th I would say we went another almost a year without Joe. Okay. And things were pretty good. I mean, we had Rachel there, and we had Callum Templeton Smith, uh, Karen and Ty's son, mm -hmm. and uh, and then I had uh, Mike who came in later, who was helping on certain days of the week. But um, no, I, I really see this the decline. Twenty fourteen, um, Deborah's passing, a really long and aggressive winter, combined with construction on College Street. Yeah. Combined with a lot of businesses on College Street closing. Yeah. So um, Toronto is very um, interesting in that as a, a neighborhood flourishes, businesses come in, they do well, you have restaurants, clubs, all these things going on. Uh, and then the rents go up and mm -hmm. then the businesses close and then it ends up becoming empty again. Yeah. But because the area was popular at one point and someone could get $5,000 for their rent in the one building. Yeah. Then they would rather sit and let the um, the building sit empty, hmm. and not not get anything and and get tax breaks. Yeah, uh, if they're not going to get the five thousand dollar rent. And so, we found that there were a lot less people in the area in general. Yeah. So a lot less walk-in traffic, and we had spent a lot of time cultivating events to get people to come into the neighborhood. And when we weren't doing events every week or every other week, because um, your energy was gone. Yeah, for that. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't happen in the same no. way. The writing was kind of on the wall for me that spring, and we had talked about closing. And uh, you know, um, the afternoon that Debbie passed, I was looking at other retail locations. Okay. So, um, so I was looking at another spot, and then uh, we had ladies' night that night, and then I came home because uh, she hadn't shown up. You know, it was kind of on the wall. We we were planning to move somewhere else or do something different. Okay. And I had been talking about this, maybe going into subscriptions only at that point. Okay. So even if she never passed away, you could have been at a different place or, or yeah. it could have closed anyway. Yeah. Okay. So we had been looking. I mean, I knew that Darwin was leaving, so... That left, uh, they were paying half the, like, not a half, but a third of the rent. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the writing was kind of the wall. We had to do something. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't stay at that location. 
Uh, if Ty Templeton had been able to move his school in there, then maybe we could have stayed, but they had already paid for a lease and they didn't want to move. So uh, it just, the toy, the fact that Shane wanted to make an event space out of it in the back, um, but he had a different approach to doing it as an event space and it just didn't work out. So, yeah. Yeah, he, he wanted money uh, rather than ancillary sales. So, yeah. So in my mind, events get people in the door and that's where you make your money is selling things yeah. once they're in the door. Shane sort of felt like, no, I have an event space. If you want to use my event space, it's this much money. Yeah. So all of a sudden I can't do book launches and stuff like that. And it just ends because up being... people, because people don't want to pay the fee. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, it's not like that's wrong. It's just a different, it's just a different approach. Yeah. Right. No. And, and it's right. They're paying the rent. Yeah. They have the space. If you'd like to hold a party here, this is how much it is. Yeah. And this is what we can provide for you as part of that fee. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but a lot of people in comics were like, oh, but you know, we'd rather do it for free. Yeah. And so maybe he didn't read the customer base or Maybe, the, yeah. uh, properly but anyway it's it's just yeah. a, it's, it's a different it's, approach it's, whatever we can go back and question yeah. what things but it, it didn't work out oh we're done uh next episode you'll find out what happens to the comic book lounge and gallery in our interview with kevin boyd uh if you before you listen just check us out on uh, twitter uh, you can follow us at Speech Bubble. Also, we're on Facebook, uh, Speech Bubble. Or you can visit our website at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. See you next time. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Never Sleeps Network.